Now you should be in your Bible at Matthew chapter 13 as we continue this study from Matthew's gospel. It's been a wonderful uh, 13, 14, 15 weeks now, and we'll continue until we finish the gospel of Matthew. I, I want to share with you this morning, first and foremost, that uh, Jesus is the king, and we are his citizens in his kingdom. And that doesn't start when you go to heaven, that's now. We are in the kingdom of God right now. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We should all be walking in that, even in this day. Even in this day. If there's ever been a time when the church has struggled with her identity and her calling, it would have to be now. And this would especially be true right here in North America. I read another article this week from One Christian to Christians who are sideways over the fraudulent uh, results of the election, calling them to show respect for the office of the president and submit to the governing authorities as scriptures command. They, they, it's easy as Christians to lose sight of that. We only see the corruption. We only see the way things didn't turn out as we thought they should. But we lose sight of the bigger picture of belonging to God's church and what it means to belong to his church. We forget, we neglect to see that in the Bible it speaks of the fact that our Savior said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And, and at the same time, that's when Tiberius was soon to be replaced by Caligula as Rome, the Roman emperor. He was a true reprobate. This was a time when Jesus came to the earth. This is when he was here to minister and to love, and to share the seed, the gospel, so that people would then be saved. And even the Apostle Paul, he said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We tend to forget that. We tend to ignore that when we look at a government system that's corrupt in some way, shape, or form, or where we think it's way off course. Interestingly, <clears throat> Paul spoke those words while Nero, who would become his executioner, was still in power. Somehow we get this idea <clears throat> that it should be better for us. And while each and every one of us should want that, God's at work in the difficulties as much and even more than in the good times. This, this article that this Christian wrote went on, <coughs> he went on to say that doesn't mean that we stop fighting against a progressive agenda that would come out of this administration. We should still fight for our First and Second Amendment rights. We should still fight for the rights of the unborn. We should still speak out in defense of our founding Judeo-Christian principles in our nation. And then he comes to the end of the article, and almost in a side note, almost like a postscript, he says, and yeah, and we should be salt and light because our true citizenship is in heaven. So he addressed Christians about their responsibility and rights as Americans, and then in a few, as few as four words in a closing of an article that was written about 300 words, he mentions salt and light. To those who are called, who are saved out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ, this afterthought of a mention of salt and light should be viewed as the biggest oversight in the solar system. But the reality is, most of you are hanging on what I said about the government and about the corruption and about the current president. And not realizing that the greatest struggle a Christian faces today is being a witness for Jesus Christ. If there's ever been an identity crisis in the church, if there's ever been a time when we've lost sight of our purpose and mission, it's now. Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, the early church, they all faced persecution on a regular basis, yet it never deterred them from their commitment to spread the gospel, to share so we come to an interesting point here in our, in our study, 
And before we get into the Gospel of Matthew, I just think it's important that we lay the foundation because I think you'll, you'll read, you'll, you'll pay attention to the text in a different way. You'll hear it differently than if we just go right into the text. Oftentimes we do that, and sometimes we're not prepared to receive it. And this is such a poignant, important word that Jesus is sharing. I do think that we, as the church, need to recognize that in this day that we live, it's easy to become adrift. It's easy to pull away from the moorings of strong biblical witness and get caught up in the religion of the day, which is politics. And so we need to be careful. It's as if we're flying upside down and don't realize it. We've taken our eyes off the gyroscope, which is the word of God for a believer, and now we're flying blindly in a storm that has completely blocked our visibility. Man, I'm struggling to speak here. <laughs> Maybe I should just drink the whole bottle, and if you only knew what was in this, it's... <laughs> I want to be filled with the Spirit, capital S, though, see. <laughs> Christians, it should not be the case that we're flying blindly. It should not be the case that we're flying upside down. It should not be the case that we're trusting in, adhering to, relying upon any system, any philosophy of this world or system of this world. We are wasting precious time and energy on lesser things. Nothing in your life, Christian, nothing in this world is of greater importance than the value that you and I have being salt and light. That should not be a postscript at the bottom of a Christian article. That ought to be the centerpiece. That's our identity. That is our calling. We live in a world that's dead and decaying. It's a world filled with darkness. And God has given us this wonderful message that we should be living in right now more than ever. Oh, how the world needs answers, and they're not going to find it in the religion of politics. The only answer for this world is Jesus Christ, period. When you have peace without truth, you have no peace. And there's not an administration I don't care who they are, Republican or Democrat, that can provide that peace. Only the Bible can provide that peace that we truly need. So, it's time for us to snap out of it. It's time for us to tie up to the never-changing mooring of God's Word and get back on the train with Jesus who said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's where you want to spend your focus and your time and your energy, in the Word of God. And you want to communicate that Word with others in this day that we live. And in chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, our Lord and Savior addresses with absolute clarity the church's identity and calling in this world. If you leave today, I pray, my prayer is that you'll understand your identity and calling in Christ. If we look at verse 1, look what it just says in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Well, what day is that, that same day? He's speaking, it's the, the, the writer is speaking of the day when Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother showed up when Jesus was in the house and he was having an all-out battle with the Pharisees and the scribes. And he went to the point of calling them a brood of vipers, which basically, essentially, he's saying, you're the sons of the devil. And when he said that, all of a sudden, Mary and her bro her, uh, his brothers were like, hey, Jesus, come out here. They knew that, man, you are, you're stirring up the hornet's nest here. This is not going to end well for you. And they called him out. But what did Jesus say to his disciples when they said, hey, your, your mother and brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. He said, no, you're my mothers and brothers. I'm about my father's business, the kingdom. He put perspective back into light there. And so now all of a sudden he, 
He, it says he came outside in verse 2, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. That was very typical of a rabbi who's teaching in the temple. They didn't stand as we do and preach or teach. They would sit, the people stood, and they would sit and begin to teach. So Jesus goes, gets in the boat, and he begins to teach. He sits down in the boat. Now, the boat's offshore, so another reason to sit down in the boat is you're moving in the water, you know, you want to be careful there. But also, in, if you know the Sea of Galilee, especially up in the Capernaum region, in that area in Galilee, uh, this, the, this, the shoreline's pretty steep. It goes up. People could sit on the shore, Jesus in the boat, literally he could speak, and it was like a natural God-made amphitheater where you could, the voice would carry. And so Jesus is able to speak to a crowd that we wouldn't speak to in this room without a microphone system. And in fact, the crowd was a lot bigger than this. And here he is speaking. And look what it says. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things, here it is, in parables. We always want to not just uh, give you the point or the principle, but we want to give you teaching that supports the principle and the point. And so let me break this down for you. Some things are of this world, and other things have eternal value. They have eternal consequences. Jesus is about to teach in parables what really matters. He's going to teach the kingdom of heaven. And as his royal subjects living in this world, our identity is found in our king, and our mission is making him known to a lost and dying world. He's going to lay that out in a parable. Now, beginning in chapter 13, Jesus changes his course. This is the first time that he really begins to flow in parables. He has used analogies in the past. He talked about salt and light. He talked about uh, building a house on rock and building a house on sand. He's already talked about analogies, but a parable is different. A parable is where you actually tell a story that is parallel to a truth taught in the Scripture. So there's this story that allows you to get a feel and understand with clarity the story makes sense to you, but it's supposed to be parallel to a truth, which probably in a parable will not make sense. So that's what Jesus is about to do. In this chapter alone, he tells seven parables. A parable, again, is when Jesus takes an analogy of something in the world that those people were living that they would understand, and he tells a story out of that understanding that they would get it, but then it's supposed to be parallel to a spiritual truth that only those with ears to hear would understand. The only way that those people would understand the parable is if Jesus took time after sharing the parable to explain the parable. I'm sharing this with you because this leads us to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Early on, Jesus was healing people, delivering people. He was doing many signs and wonders, and people were flocking to him. They wanted to be around him. They're still flocking to him, but he actually has already communicated, but they're not really coming to me for what I'm sh communicating, for what I'm sharing. They're not believing in me. They're coming to me for the show. They're coming to me to be healed. They want me to do something that will change their physical realm. They're not really tuned in to the spiritual realm. Maybe that's you today. You're here, and you're here because you're hoping there's something that you can take and put your hands around and go out in the world and make money or do this or that. Wrong church. We're not a church that's here to try to push a prosperity gospel that everything in the Bible, everything in the gospel is for your benefit. We don't believe that at all. We believe that everything in the gospel is for God's benefit first and foremost. And that's why we face persecution. Being a true believer, Peter said, you will be persecuted if you're a true believer. So what's happened is Jesus has come to a point where now he's no longer going to speak in a way that those who have unbelieving hearts would understand. And it's actually, this, these parables are an act of divine mercy on people who have 
hardened hearts who will not understand. They will not receive him. You say, how do you know that? Until you share with them, you don't know that they won't receive. Hey, did you know that God knows you long before anybody else knew you? He, he's known you from the beginning. Did you know that God knows the heart of every human being? He knows the number of hairs on your head. Did you know that God loves everybody and he, he knows them from the foundation of the, before this world was created, God already knew you and every other human being, every other soul, God already knew them. Believe me, God knows with foreknowledge who will believe in him and who will not believe in him. And so he's not going to any longer open the door for those who have an unbelieving heart, a hardened heart who will not receive. That door is now closing. What he's going to do is share further and explain the parable to those who have an ear to hear spiritually. And that makes you have to, you have to ask this question. Have I closed the door where I'm no longer hearing? I'm not really desiring to hear. I go to church because that's the thing we do. But it's a religion experience. It's not a relational experience with God. And if that's the case, you need to repent of that. And you need to once again open your heart, let it become fertile soil so that God can begin to pour into you his word by the Holy Spirit. This is for us as much as it was for them in that day, for the disciples. And so verse 3, and he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. Now, that alone would be a very common thing that the people would understand because they had these fields and they had these pathways that would separate the fields. And so a sower would go out and he would go through the field and he would have a, a seed bag wrapped around his shoulder or maybe he took his tunic and he would wrap it up in his belt and put the seed in the belt. And he would reach down in and grab seed with his hand and he would throw the seed. He would broadcast the seed, the scripture says. It's the first time they, that, we have, that we see in the Bible speaking of broadcasting. We think of radio, you know, or we think of television broadcasting. No, it started with God's word going out. And, and they, they would get that. They would understand a sower throwing seed as he walked along the path, as he would go into the field and throw the seed. He didn't know where he was throwing it. He didn't know what the seed would land on. Very difficult when you're broadcasting to direct the seed. In fact, that's not the idea. The idea is not to pick and choose where to put the seed in the soil. It's just to throw the seed. And that's what Jesus starts with here. He told them many things in a parable. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, he sow some seed fell along the path. He was walking on that path in between fields. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. The people would understand everything he's saying here. They've seen seed lying on the path, and they've seen birds come and take the seed away. They've seen seed fall in places where there's deep rock below, limestone, and the, the dirt's only that deep, and, and immediately the seed germinates and comes up quickly because it can't go down deep, so it comes up prematurely. They, they, they would know that. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain. Some, now this is where it really moves beyond what they understand. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. The ratio that they experienced was 8 to 1 on average. He who, listen, he who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? We understand you're making spiritual uh, points here. You're trying to explain spiritual things. But a parable, they're going to get the parable, but they're not going to understand the parallel to the spiritual teaching. Why are you doing this? They're asking a very real question, and it's a question that many of us would ask. Why would Jesus speak to the people in that way that they couldn't understand? And here again, let me just take it to the text. Let's look at the context now. The Jews, for the most part, in that day, didn't want to understand. The Jews, they rejected Jesus as Messiah. How did they receive understanding? They didn't. 
They thought they already knew everything. Okay, so, so Jesus would explain it to them. Listen, so they couldn't really get it. And again, that was an act of mercy. You say, how's that an act of mercy? Because if he explained it to them, they would have rejected it. He already knew that before it happened. And for them to reject even knowing more truth, there would be even a harsher judgment against them. And he answered, verse 11, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. He's explaining. For to, to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But he's saying, but they won't. Yeah, that's what I would do if they would turn, but they won't. God has foreknowledge. He knows that these people will not turn to him. Verse 16, <clears throat> excuse me, but blessed are, those, are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It's important to understand that while God came to save his chosen holy and dearly loved, that would be the Jews, they rejected him. So he went after those who were not his own, Jesus said. He goes after the Gentiles. That would be you and I who are not born Jewish. And we are still living in this church age. Understand that when this is being given, this teaching, Jesus is present he is the mediator. He is the kingdom of God was with him and in him. Now Jesus is no longer here physically. He ascended to heaven. But before he left, he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will bear witness to everything he said. That's when the church started. So this was before the church age. So they had Jesus to listen to, and they wouldn't listen. Then the church age, age starts... And the church now is the mediator. The church now is given the seed bag to go out and to sow and to throw and broadcast the seed everywhere they can. And there will be people who will not hear. There will be people for different reasons who will not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. At the second coming of Christ, Israel will believe. Jews will by the mass number, will be saved. But between the first coming and the second coming, the parentheses, that's you and I. So this is the first coming. Jesus is on earth. He's doing it himself. They're not receiving it from him, Messiah. You, we would easily say, oh, if Messiah was here today, man, I, I would believe. I don't know why people wouldn't believe. If he were here today, I'd... No, you, not necessarily. You, don't, you can't say that. The only way you can believe is if you have ears to hear. Well, praise God, many of you are saved today, and maybe you would have received back then. Some of you think you're saved, but you're really one of the other three soils. And, and that's what's so sobering about this parable. Now, in the first of many parables, Jesus addresses the church's identity and mission. Here it is, verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. Now, let's establish a couple things in this parable as we get into the explanation of the parable. First, the sower is the son of man. It's, we find that in verse 37. We're not there yet. We will be there next week. But it actually says that the sower is Jesus because that, that was, he was the mediator in that day. The sower, after he leaves, will be you and I. In our day, in our church age, the church is the sower, okay? And, and the seed is the word of God. It is the gospel of God. 
In the church age, any believer who preaches or testifies to the gospel is a sower and who sows the word of Christ in his behalf. So the parable applies to any true presentation of the gospel. So this is all, listen church, Bureau Bible Fellowship, please hear me. I'm just one of, of many shepherds in this flock. We are blessed by God with elders who are shepherds of his flock. I'm one of them. I, I am a teaching shepherd, and I can tell you this today. I'm, I'm just hear me on this. Well, I want you to hear a quote from John MacArthur on this subject. This was powerful. He said this regarding the sower and the seed. The most faithful and de- quote the most faithful and dedicated Christian cannot create the word of the kingdom any more than a farmer or a scientist cr- can create the simplest seed. Just as only God creates seeds that reproduce themselves, only God creates the word of the gospel that brings the life of his son to a believer. The work of Christ's witness is not to manufacture a message to create a synthetic seed or to modify the seed given to them, but simply to sow God's revelation by proclaiming it exactly as it has been given. The power of new spiritual life is not in you or your ability to broadcast the seed. The power of new spiritual life is in the Word, the seed, just as the power of plant life is in the seed. The seeds in the parable are all of the same nature. There's nothing different about the seeds coming out of that that sower's hand sown from the same bag by the same sower. The only variable variables are in what happens to those seeds when they are sown on different types of soil. Now what we learn from the text and what you just heard from a theologian is that we are all individual sowers with a seed bag, those of us who are saved. And every bit of the seed that we're to broadcast in this world, every bit of it is the same. The, 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 the fruit that might come, the salvation that might come from broadcasting the seed has nothing to do with you. It's not that some people are good at it and some people aren't. It's not about how you sow it. It's more about being faithful to speak what the gospel is to people. Just be true and faithful to the word of God. Share obediently the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man and woman, old person, young person, boy, daughter, whoever. Listen, every one of us can sow the seed. And the seed's the same. The only differences we find are what soil that seed falls on. And what Jesus is about to do is explain to us that as we in the church age would carry out what he was doing in his day, we are going to find that some people will reject. And if you want me to be accurate with that biblically, the ratio is that for every three that reject, one will be saved. Basically, and you don't go by that ratio, but the reality is a lot more people will reject the seed that you throw than those who receive it and are saved. Those are Jesus' numbers. If you remember when Jesus said back in the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, remember he said that narrow is the way that leads to life? How many did he say would find it? That he used the word few. Wide is the gate that leads to death. How many will find it? That's Jesus being prophetic. He's saying that in the end, at the second coming, only few compared to the mass of people that have lived in all of human humanity only a few will be saved in comparison so don't get this idea that if you go out and share christ then you should see results in everybody that's why some of us aren't sharing the gospel today because we didn't get the result we wanted And when you do that, what you're basically saying to God is that my pride was wounded by that. People now don't like me that I shared that that seed with, and now they think poorly of me, and they laugh at me, they mock me, and and evidently I can't do it. I don't know how to do it right. What you're saying to God is, I'm the one that makes the seed work. 
And since I don't know how to make it work, I'll stop sharing it. And that's a lie of Satan. Don't believe that nonsense. Every one of us ought to be broadcasting a seed, and every one of us are going to face rejection in broadcasting it. Jesus is teaching that here. This is what he says. See, this idea that we've got to have some special formula or some cute little way to present the gospel so people will believe, that's just not true. Every Christian is given a seed bag. Let's go and share the seed. Amen? This is why a better title for this parable is instead of the parable of the, of the sower, it ought to be the parable of the soils. Because it really isn't about the sower. It's more about the soil that the seed falls on. Jesus wants you to understand why people, many people, will not receive the message. But then he also wants you to know that every once in a while, somebody is going to receive it, and they're going to bring forth a 30, 60, 100-fold fruit because you were obedient to share the gospel. Isn't that awesome? Every, every uh, human heart is sinful and hostile to God. Yet, every human heart is capable of being redeemed. There are no unredeemable people when they're created by God. If a person isn't saved, it's because he does not want to be saved. John chapter 6 verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Every person could receive the seed of the gospel and participate in its life if he believed. The difference is not the composition of every heart, it's the condition of every heart. Because all hearts are the same. All hearts are deceptive. All hearts are sinful. Your heart was sinful prior to Christ. Amen? Your heart still, to this day after Jesus, tries to deceive you. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? But what the difference is, is your heart was receptive to receiving the seed. And that changes everything. So let's look, if we can, at the four types of soil or as what he's calling it but really what he's saying spiritually the four types of hearts that the soil falls on or that the seed falls on the first heart is the indifferent heart the indifferent heart write that down verse 19 when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart this is uh, what was sown along the path. So again, the broadcasting of the seed would hit the path. It would only sit on the surface. Why? Because the, the, the pathway, the dirt on the path was hardened. It was pounded down. So the seed couldn't get down into the soil. So what would, it would sit there and the birds would see it and they'd swoop down. That's the enemy, spiritually speaking, the enemy coming and snatching away the seed. He, he, listen, this is the person who hears the word of the kingdom, but out of his own hard-heartedness, it keeps him from understanding the word of the kingdom. He's unconcerned and indifferent to the things of God. He gives no consideration to spiritual things because to him, they're foolishness, they're folly. And because he's constantly resisted anything that hints towards God, the soil of his heart is now like the soil on a pathway. It's beaten down to the point where the seed can't even break through the surface. In other words, the enemy of our soul can easily snatch it away. This is a person who has no remorse over wrongdoing, no conviction of their sin. His heart has been, never been cultivated to receive the word of God in any way. He has no desire for instruction or understanding of spiritual things. Therefore, he's a fool. That's not the way God created him. He hardened his heart. And so the seed can't break through. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear the Lord. That's, the be That's all I ever want from a president, by the way. He'll just fear the Lord. Would it, it, wouldn't it be wonderful he's a Christian? Yes. But does he have to be a Christian? Biblically, no. The leader of a nation doesn't have to be a Christian. But boy, it makes a big difference when he fears God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So this guy doesn't want that, so therefore he's a fool. I, it's not me making that up. It's what the Scripture says. He says in his heart, there is no God. Well, you know what Psalm 14.1 says. 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, so this person is completely on his own. He's self-sufficient, he's self-satisfied, he's self-righteous. On such a person, the gospel has no effect because it has been concealed from the hard-hearted. Jesus isn't opening that guy's heart because he knows that guy will never receive it. That's why Jesus told the disciples, when you go out in twos and you go into the village and you go to a home and you share the gospel, you broadcast the seed, if they don't receive what you're saying, shake the dust off your feet and walk. And that whole idea of shaking off the dust from your feet, it's the idea of a judgment that you just made. You're saying you're not willing to receive the word of God. There's no hope for somebody like that. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Here's why. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds the minds of the unbeliever. Now, that doesn't mean that we should ever stop trying to reach the unbeliever. Again, as a sower, you don't, you're not given the right by Christ to pick and choose who to speak to. It says the sower broadcasts the seed. So you, you, you have to be willing to share it even with those who you think are hard-hearted. They might be blinded by Satan, but here's the reality. God can lift the blinders. While God knows who will and will not believe, we don't. So every day we get up, we pray, Lord, open my eyes to see people as you see them and to love them the way you love them and to share the gospel of Christ with them where they are right now. Let God do the picking based on the hearts of, of man. Satan uses various ways to snatch away the seed from that person who has a hardened heart. He uses fear of what other people might think about becoming a Christian. He uses pride to blind people to their sinful condition and need of salvation. He uses self-righteousness to make them think they're not, that they're not so bad after all, or that if they do need improvement, they can improve themselves. Are those concepts not familiar to this world? Just go to another Tony Robbins convention. You can do it, baby. It's within you. Satan uses doubt, prejudice, stubbornness, procrastination, love of the world, love of sin, social justice, get all wrapped up in it and miss the gospel completely. God help us. Well, that's the indifferent heart. That's the one who's hardened. What about the second heart? Verse 20 is, for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of, this is very important we see this, when persecution or tribulation or trouble or trial comes on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This man's heart hears the word and by the way, this number two would be the shallow heart. It's the shallow heart. This man's heart hears the word and quickly receives it with great joy. Sometimes shallow acceptance of the gospel is encouraged by shallow evangelism that holds out the blessings of salvation but hides the cost of salvation. Like repenting from sin. Like dying to self. Like turning from the old life. You see, when people are encouraged to walk down the aisle, raise their hands, sign a card without coming to grips with the full claims of Christ, they are in great danger of becoming further from Christ than they were before they heard the message. They may have been insulated from true salvation by a false profession of faith. John MacArthur. See, with joy and enthusiasm, this person can't say enough good things about the gospel, about the church, about the preacher. I mean, they just are so excited because they got the message, and now they're in this euphoria. Their feelings are completely moved by their salvation. But because it's an emotional response to the gospel, 
They're going to be more vocal in talking about their experience and may even be zealous in church attendance, Bible study, and prayer. But because the soil of that person's heart is shallow, they have no root for the gospel to grow in. If you want to know how that related to the people in that day when Jesus talked about the, the seed sown on rocky ground, by the way, the people understood that. But what we think of when we, when we read rocky ground is all these little you know, rocks and pebbles and sticks and all this stuff is in the field. you got to get that out of there. They did. The things that were removable, the farmer would remove it. No, this is talking about below the surface, huge boulders and rocks. And they couldn't remove them. Most of it was limestone. That's how they built the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem was with limestone. That was under the ground. And so Jesus is talking about a very real thing that people understood, that there are times where your certain areas you know if you throw the seed down, yeah, it'll look really good quick before everything else. Why? Because it germinated and it couldn't go down. It went up. And you saw it. But the farmer would learn it's not going to last because the sun's going to come and because that root system can't get deep enough to find water, that sun's going to scorch it. It's not going to make it. In the first situation that Jesus talked about, he talked about the hardened heart. That person didn't get saved. The one who the seed fell on the path. That kind of a heart doesn't get saved. In this one, it looks like they're saved, but they're not. This person, too, is not saved. The gospel prompts an immediate positive reaction, but it's only temporary. All the change is on the surface. Rather than the in-depth growing of a heart, this person is led by their feelings, but not their soul. The soul's never ministered to. God's life-changing word can't take root because just below the surface of his heart is a rocky base that is even harder to penetrate than the soil's beside the road. Matthew 5.3. See, here's one of the indicators of a person like that. They're so enthusiastic, so excited about everything, but it doesn't last. And one of the things that never shows up in their life that is a clear indicator that you will see the kingdom of God is Matthew 5.3. What does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who clearly recognize that without God they are spiritually bankrupt they're a sinner only that person truly sees the kingdom of God if a person person's profession of Christ doesn't involve a deep conviction of sin a genuine sense of lostness a strong desire for the Lord to cleanse and purify, a hungering and thirsting for the righteousness and the love of His Word, along with a genuine willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ, then there is no root to His spiritual life, and it will be only a matter of time before His or her religious house crumbles. Maybe that's you. Maybe you got really excited in the beginning, but you've, you, you, the Word never went deeper and you've fallen away. You're here today because you just go to church. But there's no life in you. There's no excitement or true, deep, abiding relationship with Christ. Maybe that's you. You need to repent. You need to ask God to remove the boulder, whatever that boulder is that's keeping you from coming near to God, from letting the, the, the seed go deeper and find deep root in your life where the soul is transformed and then the third one is the worldly heart verse 22 as for what was sown among thorns this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful remember now this is jesus laying out jesus knows the hearts of every man right he knows everybody he says basically there's four types of hearts there's a hardened heart there's a heart that's emotionally driven, so it never takes root, the word. And then there's this person who, they're so world conscious, they're so tuned into the world that it chokes out the word of God when it comes to them. 
This person hears the word of the gospel and may make a token profession of faith, but his first love is for the things of the world, for his preoccupation with material things. That those things blind him to the importance of the gospel. He lives, listen, he lives as if riches are the answer to all his needs and desires. So once he has that in place in his life, now I can be a Christian. That person's not saved. Christ is not second to anything in a true believer. You've you got to come to see that. He's completely blinded by deceitfulness. It may satisfy a physical longing, but it can do nothing for a spiritually dried up heart. He will live in eternity with the full knowledge of the false bravado of his riches. He doesn't discern that his worldliness is choking out the word because his attention is on his riches, his possessions, his power, his position, his popularity. He's taken by worldly things. He's not even aware that he's lost what little knowledge of the word of God that has fallen upon him. He's not even, he can't even remember that now because he's so overwhelmed by the worldly things that he possesses. It controls him. There are few barriers to the gospel greater than the love of money and material possessions. And I say that because Jesus taught so much on it. That's why he specifically mentions riches here. He didn't say a rich person can't be saved. It's just really, really hard for them to put the wealth and the material things over here and let Christ rule in here. It's hard. I remember pastoring in Palm Beach Gardens, and this couple, you know, back in that day, man, Amway was the thing, man. It was the thing. I remember one Sunday morning, you know, I look out across the, the parking lot there from the office and I see this huge RV pull up. I mean, this thing's big. And it pulls up, you know, and they pull over to the side and the parking spaces take about 20 parking spaces, it looked like. And, and then we had church, and after church, I noticed members of the church going out to this RV, and I'm thinking, what are they, is a blood drive, or what's going on here? No, it was a couple in our church who are Amway people, and they're out there calling people to come out and see what you can have if you'll, if you'll distribute Amway at church. Well, let me just tell you, we shut that down. That, that's using the gospel for riches, for personal gain. That's called today in many pulpits in America, that's prosperity gospel. It's preached all over the place. Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6.10, write that down, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let me just tell you, riches can bite back. You can take a big chunk off, but it'll take a chunk out of you. It's not easy to be wealthy and love Jesus. You really have to guard and safeguard yourself from that. Amen? And John warns in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, listen to this warning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Whatever you possess of this world, keep a very light grip on it. Do not take it and pull it in here. Hold it out here. And if the world takes it away, let it go. Don't ever let anything compete with Christ in your heart. Amen? Now look, a lot of good can come if a Christian is able to keep you know, wealth in the right perspective. They can do a lot for the kingdom of God. But I even hesitate saying that even though it's true, and here's why. Because I know a lot of people who are thinking, Lord, if you'll just give me money, man, I'll do so much for the church. How many people have come up to me since we started this stinking what is that thing called, the, the uh, betting, uh, the, the Powerball and all that nonsense? What? The lottery. Thank you. Hey, 
I can't tell you how many people have come up to me over the years since that thing started and said, if I win the lottery, preacher, I'm going to give the church 10%. Good grief. What about the 10% you have now? Why don't you just go ahead and focus on serving God with what you have and not worry about what you don't have? Listen to this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here he lays it out, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Those three things the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of none of that is from the uh, is from the Father. It's from the world. And this is what it says in verse seventeen. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then there's the last heart. That's the receptive heart. Verse twenty three. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Tremendous response for the one who receives in fertile soil the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before salvation, the person who receives Christ had the same basic nature as everybody who rejects Christ. He's not necessarily less sinful or more perceptive than than anybody else a person who is saved may have lived a life of debauchery utter wickedness some of you your testimonies are pretty graphic and gory others of you you don't have a graphic gory testimony but guess what the same seed did the work in both of you it wasn't you you didn't come to christ on your terms you didn't save yourself you didn't make it work you didn't go out and make it 30 60 100 that is the work of god you're just faithful to live out what god's given you whoever you are wherever you are and what he's given you is a seed bag and he says i want you to be faithful to broadcast the seed and some of you are going to bring forth a harvest of 30 60 and others a hundredfold that's God's word. This is what Jesus is saying. You say, well, what if I'm the only the one getting the 30? Rejoice! The Bible says if one sinner repents, heaven rejoices. Praise God. You say, man, I've been w- witnessing for a year now, and I've not seen one person come to Christ. First of all, you don't know their heart. You don't know, you don't keep up with all those people. If you've shared Christ as you should, you can't possibly keep up with all the people you've shared with. You don't know the results. You might end up in heaven and people come running up to you. Man, it was you. You shared the seed with me. What? What What are you talking about? Yeah, you were the one. But the other side of that is that who's keeping track? It's the Lord's work. So why would you take credit for the Lord's work? It's by grace through faith that you're saved. It's a gift of God, not of yourselves. Because if it was of you, you'd boast in it. Just do it. Why? Because you're a, you're a sower. Because God put a seed bag on you. Because you have the word of God. You say, but I don't, have much, I don't know much about the Bible. It's okay. What you know, you share. And keep trying to know more. Peter said that for the church, what it's all about is coming to the, uh, to the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So every one of us here has a responsibility to carry that out. The only barrier to salvation is unbelief. And who, anyone who is willing to accept Jesus Christ on his terms of good soil, he will be saved. Jesus hears your cry when you cry out to him and you surrender your life to him. He hears it. And, and, and the gospel does its work. You don't have to do anything. And then he talks about that spiritual fruit. You say, what, what, what is he talking about when he says, bear fruit 30, 60, 100? He's talking, well, a couple things. One, he's talking about Galatians 5.22. 
He's talking about the right, the fruit of attitude, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. A true believer exhibits those pieces of fruit. I'm not saying you're perfect in it. I'm not saying the fruit doesn't get a little tarnished every once in a while. But, but you are about the fruit. Amen? That means this. Wherever you walk, there's fruit laying behind where you walk. People are picking up fruit and eating it. It's so good. They see your love. They see your purity of heart. They see your kindness. They see your self-control. Those things are all fruit that you're saved. And then there's the genuine believer also bears fruit of behavior, which Paul refers to in Philippians 1.11. He said, the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness. You're going to live differently now. Not because you're working it, you're trying. You didn't save yourself, so how can you be, be righteous? You can't be righteous. The righteousness is in you through Christ. Here's the greatest news ever, and those of you who are unsaved here this morning, I pray you'll hear this, that Jesus went to the cross and he bore your sins. And God, because you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, God allows the righteousness of Jesus, the one who never sinned, but who bore your sins, he allows the righteousness of Jesus to now come onto you. So that when he looks at you, the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you as sin. He can't. Christ paid for that. Your sins have already been judged on the cross. Jesus died for you. That was the judgment of God against your sin. Now what God sees, it's just as if you never sinned. You say, where is that in the Bible? Justification by faith. You've been justified just as if you never sinned. Praise God. Some of you need to receive that identity. If you only knew what the work of Christ has accomplished in your behalf, how much God loves you. And then not only has the work been done and you're seen as righteous, but now he's able to bring up fruit in your life. You're able to be a servant of Christ, to go out every day and share that good news with others. Let's pray. Lord, this, this parable is so profound that somehow there are those of us because our heart was fertile we were able to receive the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Father, for sharing the gospel with us. Somehow, some way, each of us that are saved, somebody shared Christ with us. And we are indebted to you, Father, for that. Because that person was simply doing what you called each of us to do. There are others, Lord, here who might have found identification with one of the other three soils. A hardened heart. Might be some who responded with great joy, but it was so shallow it couldn't take root. And the minute trials came up because of the word of God, they walked away. Others who receive a little bit of the seed, but the, the weeds of the worldliness in their life has crowded out, has stolen all the sunlight, all the nutrients from the soil so that that seed cannot take root. I pray, Lord, that we would repent of our sin and recognize what it truly means to be a Christian, to be found in Christ. No longer do I live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Total surrender to Jesus. May that be the case, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
You can come forward as always if you'd like to pray with either a prayer partner or an elder. But to, today in the back, please hear me, today in the back, if you'd go to, actually outside, there's a table, the, hospi- uh, the uh, uh, greeting table. If you would go there, we would love to hear if, if you have received Christ in your heart. If you've just believed upon him today and you've received him by faith. We'd love to hear that so we can follow up. Let me also say that the fruit of following Jesus is serving him. And today we have these wonderful displays set up outside of various ministries of Vero Bible Fellowship. And if you'd go out there uh, and, and just walk the tables, there's two reasons why we're doing this. First, we want you to be aware of the ministries of our church and, and think about those who serve and appreciate them. As you go by the tables, there will be human beings, real people standing there. They can answer questions that you have about the ministry. They can talk with you, and you can encourage them. And then secondly, that you might be led of the Spirit to possibly be part of a ministry. So we're not looking for people to sign up because of an emotional feeling. We're wanting you to truly think about that. Is God bringing me along to a place where now I'm ready to give back and to serve in the church? So consider that, if you would, as you go today. But again, please come forward. We've got wonderful uh, ministers here to receive you and pray with you about any matter in your life. We love praying with people. And so God bless each of you today. Uh, Enjoy the fellowship of one another's company, and then make your way out and enjoy the, uh, the ministry fair. God bless each of you.